This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. You know, I know we were talking a little bit about the the food scene in Chicago. Um, I thought maybe we could start. Like, have you always been in the U.S.? Kind of what's what's the personal story before we get? There's a lot to cover on the entrepreneurial side, but I'm kind of curious to dig into uh, the personal side of who Matt Van Horn is. So I grew up in Los Angeles, was born in, in New York, but I'm, I'm not a real New Yorker. My parents are real New Yorkers, All right. Uh, but I grew up, grew up in Los Angeles and Pacific Palisades, went to high school in Santa Monica, and then went to college in Arizona, University of Arizona, and then headed up to the Bay Area in San Francisco uh, right after graduation. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Um, and it's funny how you... You kind of touch on the the real New York, and I mean it's it's important. I feel like if if there is a New York and listening, they they would kind of want that disclaimer, um, <laughs> you know. So, so thank I you for doing that. I left when I was three. I left when I was three. That's pre <laughs> pre memories. <laughs> I don't want to be attacked. All right, so I appreciate that, man. Uh, it's it's pretty cool to see kind of the, you know, the, the the different places you've been in the U.S. And you know, one of the one of the cool things in your story, um, especially early in your career, I actually didn't know this even existed, but um, you know, one of your first roles or first jobs, I believe, was actually uh, working within marketing at something called the Hollywood Stock Exchange. Now, working for uh, the Toronto Stock Exchange, this kind of appealed to me personally. But curious for those listening, like, can you actually just explain what the Hollywood Stock Exchange does and what, what your role entailed? So the Hollywood Stock Exchange was a, an online game. It was a, a web 1.0 startup. Uh, very high profile, very well funded, was backed by, I believe, a lot of the movie studios or had connections to a lot of the movie studios, started by Max Max Kaiser, who is a, a very, uh, what's the word to describe Max? He's, he's very loud and proud about whatever he's excited about. He's very excited about Bitcoin now. But this was a long time ago. I was in high school. So this is like 2000, and like 2000, 2001. And the Hollywood Stock Exchange, we would IPO different movies. So like if James Cameron is working on Avatar 5, we would like IPO that and people would be able to play and buy and trade off the excitement and hype. And if an exciting actress or actor joined the movie, then it might go up in value. And uh, But it was it was all, all for really? fun. And uh, it, it's still around somehow, some way. But it was what was really interesting is the, the company went from, I think when I joined about 50 people to then 200 to then the disaster of the dot-com bubble starting to burst. And I remember it was down to like 15 people, but they, they kept me around because I could keep updating the webpage and uh, keep launching new IPOs. And I was a cheap minimum wage intern. So I, I was able to, to go through that whole boom and bust uh, as, a, as a high school kid, I was 16 years old, which was really, really cool. I mean, that, that sounds actually really interesting, especially given kind of the, the times. You know, I feel like when you look at simulations, you know, trading simulations as an example, or even you kind of see a little bit on the esports side, you know, doing some some similar uh, things on, on the platform side. But just, you know, hearing that that was the case in, let's say, the, the late 90s, early 2000s is, is pretty interesting, specifically when you're the youngest employee going through the ups and downs of what became the dot-com boom, right? And I just thought this was life. I didn't like in, in, in real, I just thought this is how the business world. Were. Oh yeah. Sometimes you have good times. Sometimes you have bad times. Like in, obviously in retrospect, I'm like, Oh wait, that was like a big giant disaster. The, uh, 
the dot com bubble bursting, but in real time, it just felt like I don't, this is this is the work world. Was it also, and it's interesting you say that because one of my questions was like, when was your real, you know, intro to entrepreneurship? It seems like when you went to the University of Arizona, you did study business, dabbled in entrepreneurship and stuff, but was kind of the post Hollywood stock exchange role the real introduction to what entrepreneurship looked like for you? It, it was for startups. And I I don't know where the bug to to build things and start things came from, but my, my friends and I, we were always building little web pages in high school and little web projects. And when I, I remember when I was a junior in high school, I visited University of Arizona and I met with the, the dean of the business school. And I said, hey, I'm coming to your school for the entrepreneurship program. Can you please pre-accept me? And he said, huh? You apply as a junior in college, not as a junior in high school. Like, what What are you doing? And I'm like, no, but I only want to come here if I get into your entrepreneurship program. And he's like, okay, well, apply your junior year of college, not high school. And uh, of course, that, that frustrated me. But then fast forward, I ended up applying my junior year of college when I was at the school and didn't actually get into the program, the, the entrepreneurship program that I really wanted to, to go to. I'm assuming because my, my grades were not perfect. The, the two of my friends who got in, they both had, had perfect GPAs. I, I did not have a perfect GPA. And, but that I didn't take no as an answer. So I ended up just showing up at orientation and starting to form my team and my group. And they, my team elected me uh, general manager. And then I went up to the people running for, I'm like, please, will you let me in? And uh, they were like, are you going to work really hard? I said, yes, I will. I promise. And they, they let me into the entrepreneurship program finally. Yeah, that's uh, sometimes you got to kind of dig your way into it. But um, it's interesting, too, because you, you touch a lot on, on the university side. And, you know, for me personally, I went through finance and I didn't really get a intro to what entrepreneurship looked like until I joined the exchange. You know, then seeing like Shopify go public. I mean, that really was the first time I actually understood what this all meant, kind of what the ecosystem looked like, how tight knit things are. Uh, you only really understand that that bubble per se once you're actually in it or somewhat you know related to it. Um, but in university, not not so much. So curious uh, on that premise, like the the difference between the academic and the practical side. It does seem to me from the onset that entrepreneurship is one of those things that you really have to go through from a practical lens. But were there certain things that you learned from whether it was the groups you were part of um, within that time in uni? that you still leverage today? Absolutely. Uh, I was in this, this uh, I call it my, my, my nerdy Jewish fraternity that I was a, a member of called AEPI, uh, which I had a great time. And, and one of my uh, the activities that I love most was the recruitment process and recruiting people to, to join the fraternity, which was actually like pretty expensive for, uh, as, as a college student. And I just was obsessed with finding the, the highest quality people to join and convince them. And I had like, to, I had to convince them to join in like uh, the, the, the joke about fraternities is you pay for your friends, quote unquote. Um, but it's true, fraternity is expensive. And so convincing people that don't want to do something to then see the benefits and then join, that was something that I became obsessed with. And that, that skill set has carried on to anything that I've, I've done since then. And one of my favorite activities to this day is, is recruiting. And 
trying to get the the most talented people to work at June to work at Weber. Mm-hmm. Like for example, I, I updated my LinkedIn yesterday just to to put Weber on there, and uh, an engineer who who turned us down about four years ago uh, sent me a message. He's like, "Oh, congrats!" And so I just immediately replied, "Are you ready to join us yet?" <laughs> and he's like, and, he's, "And we start chatting, and he's like, "Oh, well, I'm not ready to leave the city I'm living. I'm like." We are remote first for our software engineers. You can live wherever you want. He's like, okay, let's chat. So we're, we're doing a call next week. But like, I just have this, like, this love of recruiting and it, it started in, in college. Well, I mean, th- thankfully it did. And I feel like it's also one of those skills that takes time to build. It comes with, you know, both the, um, I guess the, the sort of honed skill, but also there's a bit of intuition. There's a bit of experience that comes with it, different situations, the, the goods, the bads. I think that we all know from your time and, and from your love uh, recruiting and hiring, you know, real talent, which by the way, we all know in tech how difficult that could be, how competitive the landscape, especially for development is, right? Like computer dev and, and that side of the business, even probably for sales and marketing, arguably could be the same case. What, uh, two questions for you. One, uh, what are some of the things that you consider being like real talent, the ones that, you know, really stand out for you and can get in a call with Matt next week as an example. Um, and the second one from the other side, how, how do you set yourself up to be differentiated from the environment that se- seems you know in- entirely competitive? That's a good question. I think for, for me and for Nikhil, my, my co-founder, it's, it's about finding people that want to be part of this mission that want to believe in what we believe. And for us with, with June, where we started a a smart appliance company from, from the ground up, we did that because we love food. We love cooking and none of the tools that we had made us happy. They didn't give us the joy that we wanted out of cooking. And so we had to make those tools ourselves. And so we weren't finding the thoughtfulness in the, in the indoor space that, that we wanted. So we had to make it ourselves. And so on the recruiting side, being able to tell that story and get people excited about this movement of something that Nikhil and I so strongly believe in on the cooking front to be a part of that is, is really exciting. Yeah, I think that that sort of genuine, you know, love for for what you're building probably stands out a lot. Um, you know, and, and I was still curious, like when you, so definitely addressing the part where you're differentiated and curious uh, from the other side of the table, you know, when you are sitting in front of a candidate, what really stands out to you? If we can kind of pinpoint it to two or three things, I'd love to kind of really dig deep in your mind and see what you would regard as kind of top talent that you would hire firsthand at June or, or otherwise? Well, so what, one of the areas that, that matters, probably matters more than it should, is are the brands and companies that people have worked at. I, I've heard a, uh, a reference from, from Apple where if, if someone has made it through two review cycles at Apple, aka they did not get fired after two review cycles, then they're good. Like it's just like a badge of honor. So like just getting a job at Apple is not good enough to necessarily mean that you're good. But if you've made it through two review cycles at Apple, then you're good. So little little things like that 
can can go a long way. And so a- Apple is a big part of the the DNA of the June team. I want to say about thirty percent of the team comes from Apple. Wow. And we in the in the early days when we were just getting started, when we were looking to hire our first program manager and our first mechanical engineer, our first product designers, when every time we deviated away from an Apple engineer being our first one, it it didn't feel right. And and so it's it took us longer. We probably shipped later because we were waiting and did not hire the the first mechanical engineers that we were meeting that were excited about June, but we we were patient until we we hired our EPM Danielle, uh, who had traveled the world for a year and was at Apple in charge of the iMac line before that. Now she's our uh, director of program management at at June and Weber, and then also our our first product designer uh, Nico, who who joined us, who'd actually worked with Danielle previously, who's who's at Lyft now. And by setting our bar really high and being patient, which is frustrating to be patient, we were able to build this foundation. And then from there, we're able to start pulling from their networks and getting them them to join. And we hired Drew, Matthias joined later, and we're able to kind of build this network effect, which is really, really powerful when it comes to recruiting. Yeah, that's actually a good point. It's funny, I haven't actually... Well, I mean, I, I, for some reason, I didn't consider that to be a pretty important factor in, in the sense of, you know, having those network effects when someone does join you, let's say as a CTO or even like a VP of dev or whatever, then there is that impact of their immediate circle, their immediate friends, usually being the same thread, wanting to then take on the the jump and, and, and join the same startup. Um, that's actually a really good point. I, I, yeah, I think that that's seldom probably talked about as well. It's often hardest to, to find the first kind of couple. And eventually it just becomes, I think, easier and easier maybe. Totally. And one of the things that I, I say to, to new managers, someone that, that newly becomes a manager or newly becomes a director, that one of the most important muscles that need, they need to learn is recruiting, but not also not just normal recruiting, actually recruiting from your network. And people that know you well and getting them to to join you is one of the most valuable skills as a manager, a director, a, a VP. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And I've often found, like, even when I, I joined a fintech startup, it was very much that case, you know, where uh, it's word of mouth, it's it's friends in the network. Uh, and I think from even from my side, coming from corporate to startup, uh, it's even more comforting, right? When you know um, that there's also a personal connection there. So let's kind of jump in a little deeper, uh, you know, on the June story. You kind of touched on it a little bit from a recruiting perspective in terms of that passion or maybe that pain point. Um, but, you know, setting out on a mission to actually transform the kitchen is no easy feat. You know what I mean? Like building an app maybe could be a bit easier, probably not as cap intensive. But when you want to build, build a very kind of smart um, oven that you know, can recommend like the perfect temperature to, to roast a chicken as an example, or to, or to make a steak. Like these are, these are, I think, harder situations to, to, to come across. And so from a starting point, probably for a lot of the aspiring founders listening to this, who might want to take on similar situations, how do you even start to map out what will eventually become, you know, June of what we know today? So there's this, 
really important feature that entrepreneurs need and have in some ways, and I, I call them horse blinders, where if you're going to try and do something completely insane and crazy, like starting an appliance company from scratch when no one on your team has ever worked on an appliance before, to build, for us, it was building a countertop oven with a camera in it that didn't melt and localized machine intelligence to recognize most commonly cooked foods and cook them perfectly. Like this, you know, sounds straight out of a, a you know, futuristic TV show and not something that could possibly be feasible, even though we know each thing is, has, has been done in different, in different ways, just not as the, the sum of all these things. And so you need these horse blinders on that don't talk you into the thousands of reasons you should not do this and it is a bad idea, but just pick your, pick your idea, stick with it, make decisions as you go. And for us at June, we, we got very lucky. And we also were very fortunate that we went from one person to the next that was willing to help us out and to, to help us figure out how the heck we pulled this thing off one challenge and hurdle at a time. So in the, in the beginning, we, we'd never shipped a consumer hardware product before. Nikhil had worked on the iPhone at Apple, but that's very different than, than starting from scratch on a new consumer hardware product. And uh, my, my old boss, Kevin Rose from, from Dig, he knew this guy, Liam Casey. Liam, there's articles about him. He's known as Mr. China. He's an Irish guy that's known as Mr. China and runs a major manufacturing and uh, product design consultancy agency called PCH. And we got introduced to, to Liam very early and Liam was an early believer. And he said, hey, we will give you a, a conference room. You can work out of here in the early days and we'll have a team that can help you out and I'll send introductions for you. And then he introduced us to the team at, at Ammunition, Bob Brunner and Matt Rowlandson. And they were the industrial design behind Beats and had done a lot of industrial design for Square and very early on, they they believed in us. They believed in Nikhil and I and started doing work with us in, in the beginning for free before we had any money in the bank account. And wow. they were hopeful that we would get funding, that we would be able to, to make this thing work. And they end up, we did end up paying a lot of money because they did a lot of work with us and they've, they've been incredible to work with and Jonas. And what but they took a chance on us and so many people were so nice and we were so fortunate while we kept our horse blinders on that. Yes, we are going to build this product from the ground up through, through hell or high water. And we, we kept getting lucky and meeting smart people that introduced us to another smart person. And we kept going. You, you do talk about like when you, when in your, your kind of uh, starting paragraph, like you were saying how, um, typically like the hardest challenges is overcoming what maybe others might not see. And I've heard um, equally as important to, to, to also listen and also learn from the no's that you might receive from whether it's investors or potential partners or customers. Um, you, you do talk about kind of the, the luckiness aspect. And of course, you know, I'm sure 
um, you guys were executing in the right way. But what were some of those no's that you received or kind of the hesitations? Like, did you pitch this to someone that, you know, looked at you and just thought you were batshit crazy kind of like that? I'm curious if, if you if you guys had a moment like that. So, so many times, hundreds of times. And I, it's especially true in, in fundraising. So our, our easiest round to fundraise for was our, our seed round. So our $7 million seed round that we did out the gate. And that was the easiest to raise for. And it was still felt like a 50-50 split mm -hmm. of you're absolutely insane. There's no way I'm investing in this. And you're absolutely insane. I'm investing in this. <laughs> it was the, the general consensus was the same. But there was a, I, I don't remember the number, but maybe call it a 50% hit rate that was like, if this works, then this could be really, really interesting. And so we, we, I, I remember that that first phone call I got from, from first round capital, we, we'd pitched two firms, first round capital and, and one other. And I got the phone call from the first firm that said, sorry, you're insane. We're, we're out. Mm -hmm. And I, that, that, that firm I really thought was going to be in. And so I was like, oh man, what if no one is going to fund this thing? Right. And then I got the call from, from Rob Hayes from first round capital. And Rob says, Matt, you're, you're insane, but Nikhil seems smart. <laughs> so we're in. <laughs> you're like, Nikhil, so thank I'm you, like, man. Thank you okay. for saving the day. You clearly didn't call me smart, which is totally fine. The kill is much smarter than me. I will totally take that. <laughs> and and then they said yes. And I was like, oh, okay, there's a chance that we might be able to pull off this, this first round of funding. And then we did. But there have been so many no's along the way. And when did you guys, I think this is a kind of a cool anecdote. I know it's not, you know, listen, as like a serial entrepreneur, I know these things might seem kind of small in magnitude, but maybe to the average listener, it, it's a cool kind of anecdote. When you get a celebrity on board, I think there's a bit of a different flair and obviously strategic in, in many ways, but when and, and how did you guys get Ashton Kutcher to get involved? And for those who probably know, and you know, he's, he's been quite active on the, uh, on the angel investing side himself, or I think with a, with a fund, if I'm not mistaken. So Ashton was an investor in Path, the last startup that I'd worked for. And I, I'd met him a few times, but I, I didn't really know him. Mm -hmm. And when Nikhil and I were raising that seed round where I said, you know, felt like that 50-50 hit rate of people being in versus people being out. And he, uh, we, we met up with him, gave, gave him our best pitch. And he said, no, he, he was not interested. He, he liked the theories of a new appliance company, but he didn't think it was the right first product for us to tackle. And he was out. And then fast forward to, we were a about to do our, our pre-order campaign and announce the product to the world. And I, I'd actually given up on him investing. I, I did not think that he would, but I just wanted to, him to come by and see the product and do a demo for him. And he came by and immediately when he, there's this clip of, of Ashton where he's on Jimmy, uh, on Jimmy Kimmel and he's talking about the June oven and he talks about this when he comes to the office and sees this oven and it's like the Jetsons. That's how he described it and how we put the food in and walked away and then showed him on his phone. And uh, what I remember about that meeting was 
Um, I, I hadn't spent any time with Ashton on product, but he is one of the most, maybe of June investors, maybe the, the best product person that, that I know. And so we just jammed on product ideas. We were thinking like, how do we, since the June is not a microwave for things that are faster in a microwave, like reheating coffee and things like that. So we then like jammed like 20 minutes. Okay, how could we figure out how to reheat coffee really quickly within the June? And like jamming on different concepts around that. And it was amazing. And I, I was enamored by his, uh, by his ability to think through and help me think through difficult and interesting product challenges. And then he called me up and he's like, cool, I'm, I'm in. I'm like, in for what? He's like, I, I want to invest. I'm like, I thought you were out. He's like, yeah, I'm in now. That, what you built is really cool. <laughs> and so we, 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 we got very lucky and fortunate. And then Ashton was, was, has been very, very supportive and, and helpful over the years and, and getting the word of, of June out there. And, but more importantly, honestly, uh, his, his brain on product stuff has been amazing. No, that, that's amazing. Well, I mean, I think it also goes to show just kind of the persistence that you guys had, you know, kind of the, the first decline as, as you would when you were a VP of business at Path. You guys met up a couple of times. Someone else probably, you know, probably would have either forgot or just kind of dropped the ball in it. And I think that that's a, truly a very important lesson that, that I hear over and over again from entrepreneurs who share some of these stories is just kind of that, that real grit and persistence that you need. To, to really help see someone through with the story, right? I mean, it, that kind of expectation that they're going to come to you every single time is, is really uh, misleading. So, totally. I, I remember, yeah. it's memory from high school. I don't, I don't remember. Uh, it would be better if it was an actual human. I remember what human it was. But I remember I got a business card mm-hmm. of a CEO of something. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm just going to cherish this business card. And I will, one day there could be an ask where I want to email this, this CEO and, ask a favor it's like because I shook his hand once at a conference but like that's that's not the right approach the right approach is figure out how to build a relationship how do I add value to that person so that a relationship could be created because just holding on to that that piece of paper and like hoping for one day that you'll have a reason to do it that's that's not a good system and so I think absolutely to figure out how you add value to someone even if you don't have an ask at the time it's the best time to possibly do it yeah, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever uh, read uh, Jeffrey Gittimer's books, but he has just this one quote that I, I keep referencing, but it really, I think, stood out to me the most. And it's, um, a sale will earn you a commission and a friendship will earn you a fortune. You know, and I think that, that that's probably a good kind of mantra to have when, when building relationships. Um, so, you know, we kind of talked about a little bit of the growth and, and kind of, I guess, the, the tipping point. When did you guys really feel like with June... Um, you started innovating with something that was really, really special for the market. I mean, for, for people who don't, who don't, or may have never crossed what, what June is, I definitely recommend checking this out. You know, it's, it's, it has some really cool features. It links to an app. It has so many different elements to it, whether it's on the heating side, the insulation, um, just kind of finely tuning uh, what cooking could be without you having to know what exactly to do or waste your time in the kitchen. Um, but I'm curious, like, when was that real tipping point when you guys truly felt like you had success with this product? I, I still don't know that I feel that way, uh, but because there, there's always that next milestone, there's always that that next thing that that I, I want to get to that that next echelon of of sales or engagement. 
but for me one of the the first things that really shocked me and wowed me was that once we had so we we have a camera in every oven and our customers that opt to share their data with us were able to learn and understand what they're actually doing with this thing and for us once we started getting the early data that our customers were using the June oven two and a half times per day that just blew my mind and made me say like whoa what what the heck are they doing? And we're, we're, we literally know. We know that they're using the June for breakfast, whether it's making bacon or toast. And then usually at dinner, they're doing salmon or chicken or steak. And they're using it two and a half times a day. That was the thing that just said, whoa, we might have something here. Like this, this product, people seem to like it a lot because it becomes their primary cooking device and something that we didn't realize at the time we kind of were coming in and saying like yes this will obviously replace your toaster and toast but you won't use your big oven again unless you're cooking for 10 or more people but one of the things we didn't think about was that it would replace a lot of stovetop cooking so usually people when they cook a chicken breast they're just cook it on their stovetop and they're constantly cutting into it is it still pink is it not or a piece of salmon or a steak and you have to, to babysit the stove the whole time to make sure you don't ruin your food. And with mm-hmm. the June, you just put the salmon in, you close the door. It says you liked it medium rare last time. Do you want it medium rare again? And you just say yes. And you walk away and we'll even predict how long it's going to take. If you've got like a two pound piece of salmon versus a, a tiny filet, a tiny filet is going to take about nine minutes, no preheat. The two pound salmon is going to take probably 16 minutes, no preheat. And you just walk away and it's so easy. Well, I think that's exactly kind of the, the, the vision that I had when I, when I first checked it out. It's also just the cleanliness part that I imagine is such an amazing advantage. Dude, every time I cook something, and I don't know if it's just me, maybe you can resonate with this, um, but every time I cook something, especially when it's a stove stop to your point, um, if you use olive oil, you literally have to spend like at least 30 minutes post cooking just to clean everything around the oven uh, or even kind of the kitchen tops that might get covered with with oil spills. And I think that is probably another advantage. Um, and, and the other one is that fact of walking away. When you're cooking something, you have to stay on top of it every second uh, for, for several reasons. And I think just being able to use this for so many different reasons, toaster, uh, slow cooker, uh, air fryer, pizza oven, you could literally use this for almost anything you want that that's related to uh, to cooking most things when you use an oven as an example. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that, that's critical. I, I wanted to touch on uh, one thing as well, which is on the acquisition side. So of course, you know, I think the route for every um, entrepreneur is typically either you continue growing the business, you exit via M&A or you IPO. Um, you've, you've had a couple of exits now, and, and I think it's, it's fair to ask kind of some lessons learned, right? Uh, if you look at June, it was acquired by Weber, which you're currently the president of. Um, if you look at Zimride, your previous uh, startup, um, which I believe you're still an advisor of, it, it was acquired by Lyft. So these are some sizable acquisitions by notable companies. How was that process for you? And maybe talk through kind of the emotional side to it as well that sometimes doesn't maybe seem to make headlines because it's not as clickbait worthy. 
Yeah. So, so I'll just go with, with, with Weber um, and how that, that came to be. So mm-hmm. we, when we originally were starting to think through who our first potential partner might be to take June technology and partner with them on, Nikhil and I thought that our first partner would most likely be someone that makes a big oven and that we'd partner with June's technology on a, a, a kind of built-in big oven. And so we had our list of the potential partners we might want to work with. And then out of the blue, in January 2018, I get a cold email from Jim Steven, the chairman of Weber, who his dad invented the the kettle, the the classic charcoal grill. And then Jim was behind the Genesis, the gas grill that made gas grills gas grills. And he reached out and he said, wow. quote, I'm a big fan of your June oven. And I would love to talk to you about what we're doing at Weber and what you're doing at June could be worth the time for all. I'm opening to visiting you in San Francisco almost anytime convenient for you. And that was a cold email. Like Weber was not in our list. And apparently, so I remember I screenshotted this email and I showed it to the whole team at all hands. And apparently I said, look, the, the chairman of Weber wants to, wants to talk to us. And people are like, Matt, it's Weber. I'm like, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember this, but multiple witnesses say I said Weber. I swear I would know Weber. That's hilarious. But, it's probably then, like over excitement, you know, just in the moment. I, or I just... I got yeah, you, man. I got who, your back. Who knows? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but I, apparently I said Weber. And then Jim Jim flew out and met with Nikhil and I, and we, we just hit it off. And from there, and so they ended up leading our Series C round of funding uh, mm-hmm. back then. And so they led that round. And then what was really neat about that is we got to know each other really, really well. And so we got to understand how this transformation that's been happening within Weber and how they think about product and how they think about the world. Got to spend time with Chris Scherzinger and the rest of the team. And it just, it felt like the right fit on both sides. And we, we both had this kind of, no one said this at the time, but it was kind of this like try before you buy mentality, Mm -hmm. try before you sell. So we, we both got to, test each other on both sides and build product together and and it went really well and we loved working together and so in in january we uh became 100 percent wholly owned by by weber and and now i'm curious as part of that process like you you talk about kind of you know getting to know each other a bit more as part of that series which i think is is very important um typically we hear a lot about the checklist that VCs or acquirers or maybe the exchange have when actually looking at companies or considering them for a situation. What was, it could be a super generic kind of checklist that you had in mind when actually going through the process of building the relationship and ultimately kind of giving the green light to a process that ended up in, you know, June being wholly acquired by, by Weber. What were some of those questions that you had that kind of had to be addressed? maybe from a comfort perspective? I would just say, say culture. Culture and passion for, for great products. Just any time I've, I've talked with 
you know, from the earliest conversations with, with Jim and about how he thinks about the world and how he thinks about thoughtfulness of great products and talking with, with Chris and how he thinks about the world. And it just, it felt very philosophically aligned with how Nikhil and I think about the world. And it, it just felt right as the, as the TLDR. Gotcha. Yeah. Probably the most important part is, is that synergy post. Um, and just so people are aware, like you're, you're still obviously a Weber uh, as a president mm -hmm. and are you still kind of running operations for June? Like, is that still the, the mandate? Yeah, my, 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 my job is the same. I'm it doesn't focus. <laughs> fo fo yeah. Fo focus, focused on June and trying to, to spread the word and let, let people know about this incredible product that, becomes your primary cooking device if you happen to have one on your your countertop that's amazing man we'll, we'll keep fighting the good fight and hopefully we can help with that definitely urge everyone to check out uh this june oven that we we have been talking about for the past kind of 40 45 minutes uh and matt before i let you go for for those listening they're probably wanting to hear a couple of anecdotes from your perspective in terms of kind of the the major lessons learned maybe it was from nikhil maybe it was from your personal experience what are some things that you probably advise uh, aspiring founders, especially if they're a first time founder that, that you maybe hold on closely to? Right. Yeah, it's that it's really hard challenge of the, the horse blinder to validation ratio is, is the hardest part when, and it's, it's very tricky. Like there's luckily there's, there's, things today there's things like y combinator and tech stars that are able to kind of give that validation mm -hmm. in the in the early days which when when i was working on my first company right out of school those things didn't really exist back then and so we had to to be a hundred percent intrinsically motivated which is really really hard when you are when your friends are getting jobs and getting paychecks and you're like wait i want to start this company and so I think that the, the hardest part is figuring out that right balance of the horse blinders to pursue your idea and figure out how to will it into existence and that, that level of external validation that it's worth the time to do this. And that's, that's really hard. Do you think that comes, just to, to push on this a little bit, do you think that comes from kind of intuition? Um, and, and how do you kind of segregate that? Because it's often hard to know when either to pull back or to actually double down and move forward absolutely and you just you have to go with your your gut and your conviction if you don't have that external validation i'll, I'll you know tell a the story about so my, my best friend is uh is logan green who's mm -hmm. the, the ceo of lyft yeah and we've him and i along with our, our other friend heston have been been starting little web projects and companies since since the early days of high school and when in with Zimride, so so Zimride was actually the company that became Lyft. Uh, so it was the same same company, uh, but wasn't actually part of an acquisition. But um, with with Zimride, it was Lo Logan's original idea, and uh, we were backpacking Zimbabwe and Southern Africa, and he noticed that in Zimbabwe, no one would drive a car unless every seat was filled and everyone was paying for gas money, and. Mm -hmm. So we said, huh, how do we build software around that to do that in the United States? And so we, we launched Zimride. And back then, I would cold reach out to venture capitalists on Facebook and say like, hey, check out our carpooling app, Zimride. 
and no one would take us seriously. And we couldn't get a meeting. No one would fund us. And I remember we, we got this one email from this guy who was a director of finance at eBay. And he's like, hello, I love what you're doing at Zimride. Would love to invest. And we were like, like, why, why would someone want to invest in us? Like what, <laughs> this has got to be a scam. And so we met Sean Argawal at a public place at Togo's in Fremont, in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And turns out he was legitimate. And fast forward, Sean uh, is chairman of the board of Lyft now and uh, took Trulia public as the CFO mm-hmm. and is, is incredible. It was an investor in June, but that was the only validation we had. And I forget how much he put into Zim, right? But it was, was not very much. Like it was not like a full round of funding or enough for one annual salary or anything like that. And around then I said to Logan, my best friend, I was like, hey, I clearly am not ready to do this. Like I do not have the conviction in this idea that you have. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go learn from other entrepreneurs and get a job. And before I go and do something crazy again, so I can be wiser about how to do this next time. And Logan, he persevered. I want to say it was another two and a half, three years before he raised a proper round of funding where he was able to take a very basic salary for the first time. And so Logan just had the conviction. It was, it was his, his baby and idea. And I was along for the ride Mm -hmm. in the early days and have, have remained, uh, involved as an advisor but it's kind of that like that conviction to to drive forward if something just has to exist right logan Logan persevered through that i i was not ready at that time that's incredible man well it's incredible to hear both sides and funny you bring up the story i literally re-listened to mark and recent's talk with stanford and he mentions zimride during that conversation uh on that panel and and obviously i think they're uh you know a16z is is an investor um, but just hearing you say that from your perspective and, and what I appreciate from this, Matt, is like you showed both sides, right? The side that you were on, which can very often happen. And the other side where it's kind of the one we, we often hear is kind of like the, the rugged kind of move forward, uh, tread as much as you can. And, and you kind of uh, hit success at some point. But it's, it's just neat to, to hear both sides of the story. Absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a fun and crazy story. So, so listen, what, this is a very quick answer. Favorite book that relates to entrepreneurship? I'll go with, uh, it's one that has been since my, my college days, but uh, Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi. Still, yes. still one of my favorites. Nice, man. Thank you for picking that. Finally, I don't hear the lean startup or technological revolutions or something like that, but I definitely appreciate a good people book. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.